Hello, good evening. Um, you might want to have that, that open in front of you on page 156 if you haven't already got it. But before we begin, let's uh, say our usual prayer. Father God, we thank you for bringing us here on this uh, rainy and cold night. And we thank you, Lord, that we uh, love you enough uh, to come here and to want to hear your voice. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word that you have left us and your Holy Spirit, who is our counselor and guide. And I pray, Lord, that he may speak to us this evening. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, Numbers 19 and 20. So there was a man, and he got into a taxi one day, uh, told the driver the destination, and they set off. After a while, the passenger tapped the cab driver on the shoulder to ask him something. The driver screamed, lost control of the car, nearly hit a bus, and went careering into a department store window. He turned around and looked at his passenger and said, Look! Don't ever do that to me again. You scared me half to death. The passenger said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't realize a little tap on your shoulder could be so scary. He said, the driver said, you're right. I'm sorry. It's, it's not your fault. You see, today's my first day as a cab driver. Until now, I've been driving a hearse for 25 years. <laughs> like that taxi driver, years were lights in the desert, were used to being around death. They were to remain in the desert until the entire generation who had left slavery in Egypt had died in the wilderness. None of them were to enter the promised land. Death was a constant feature of life inside the camp. It was everywhere, as we've seen over the last few weeks. And in common with other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the Israelites believed that contact with a dead person was very serious. Let's just uh, read uh, verses 11 uh, to Uh, 13 or verse uh, chapter 19 whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be uncleaned for seven days he must purify himself the water on the third day and on the seventh day then he will be clean but if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh day he will not be clean whoever touches the dead body of anyone and fails to purify himself defiles the lord's tabernacle that person must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. And so it goes on and gives an example of the person who dies in the tent and the person who touches somebody who's dead whilst they're out in the open. So just going back to verse 11 again, anyone who touches a dead person directly becomes unclean or ritually unpure for seven days. But the contagion of that death was extremely potent. You could pass it on. If you look down the page again to verse 22 on the right-hand column, uh, it says, anything that an unclean person touches becomes, becomes unclean. And anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. So the unclean person touches somebody else who is clean, and they become unclean as well. That uh, uncleanness wasn't quite as serious, but the subsequent delay... Uh, They only had to wait outside the camp for an evening. But even that delay was still enough to seriously impede their progress as a community towards the promised land. It even made living life together, simply family life, communal life, amongst the people, very difficult. Every time uh, somebody became defiled, they had to go outside the camp for seven days. You couldn't walk or stay with the great mass of people, and so progress was impeded. It's a bit like taking your dog for a walk and having to stop every few yards whilst they sniff the bushes. 
Now, of course, there's a simple public health issue here. In hot climates, corpses decompose very quickly, and it wasn't good to have them around. Moreover, the pagans who are living all around the Israelites uh, believed then, as they do now, that the dead can unduly influence the living, as we can see from the ongoing interest in ghosts, ghosts and seances and spiritualism and ancestor worship and all that kind of stuff. But for the Israelites, there was another much stronger consideration going on, and that is that God is the giver of life, not death. Man had been designed to live, not die. Death to uh, man was unnatural, the result of sin. Therefore, the presence of death in the camp was a constant nagging reminder of the death grip of human sin, which has spoiled our relationship with God and brought the pain and suffering and illness into the world. So death made them unclean. And being unclean is the antithesis, the opposite of holiness, in which, ho- in which fellowship with God and God's community is possible. So see, the uncleanness brought about by death had to be dealt with, not primarily as a health issue, or even to avoid the pagan thought uh, creeping into the camp, but because death reminded the Israelites of their sin. And like death, sin is contagious. It gets everywhere. If you look at the final few words of verse 9, it sums it up. It says that they needed to do something about their sin. They needed to be purified of their sin. You see, just as many people hide from the reality of death in our lives, many of us hide from the reality of sin in our lives. Sarah, a young mother, reflects on her life one morning as she sends her kids off to school. She thinks of the warm kiss her husband gave her as he sets off uh, to go to the job that he loves. She looks around at her beautiful home and makes a few plans for changing the decoration here or there. Thinks about how the beautiful dresser that she saw at the antique shop, uh, shop in town might fit into their kitchen. She remembered her church and all the friends she had made there, mostly her own age with children like hers. And she thought about phoning one or two of them so they could come round for coffee later on that morning. She thought about how fun it was helping the Sunday school once a month and serving the church in that way. Life was good. And she was thankful to God for all that she had. On the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that scene, is there? But being ungodly is not just about committing a certain list of sins. It's also about finding fulfillment outside of God. You see, the problem is that Sarah is so fulfilled, there's little evidence of discontent or dissatisfaction. And although she really is a a Christian, there's little evidence that her contentment has anything to do with the kingdom of God. You see, she's thrilled that all her earthly dreams have come true. And yet God has dreams for Sarah which haven't even crossed her mind. And in the camp of Israel, death was that unnatural reminder that sin is still a problem in our world. And I want to give you three points today. Three points. The first is we can be cleaner than we possibly imagine. Secondly, God's mercy goes far beyond what we can deserve. And thirdly, 
but his holiness is more serious than we can ever comprehend. So firstly, we can be cleaner than we possibly imagine. Well, to help the Israelites, God came up with this cunning plan. His cunning plan was this strange ceremony, which is explained in Numbers 19, and is strange in a number of ways. Let's have a look at it. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish, and that has never been under a yoke. Note, this is a young cow, a heifer, not a bull. Uh, which was uh, the normal sacrificial uh, practice. And it goes on, it says, Give it to Eleazar, the priest, in verse 3. It is to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. So in the presence of Eleazar, the priest, not by the priest. The priest is more of a witness here. And the slaughter doesn't take place in the tabernacle, it takes place outside the camp, not on the altar. Verses 4 and 5. Then Eleazar the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times towards the front of the tent of meeting. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned, its hide, flesh, blood, and offal. Nowhere else in the Old Testament is the blood burnt with the sacrifice. Verse 6. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool and throw them onto the burning heifer. This is like other sacrifices, and yet, in a different way, it's so unlike them. Verses 7 and 8. After that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be unceremonially unclean till evening. The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. So you see, everybody involved here um, became unclean simply because they had participated in this ceremony. And here's the paradox. These rites of purification seem to, in their effect, purify the defiled, but also they make the, um, the pure, defi- purify the defiled, but they also make the defiled pure. Verses 9 and 10. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They should be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is full of purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance both for the Israelites and for the aliens living among them. So uniquely, the ashes from the burning were preserved for later use. Now normally with Old Testament sacrifices, there's an immediate impact. But here, these ashes were to be put aside for long-term use. And that use is described in verses 17 and 19. So for the unclean person, put some ashes from the burn purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and, and the people who are there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or someone who has been killed or someone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle the unclean person on the third and seventh days, and on the seventh day he is to purify him. The person being cleansed must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and that evening he will be clean. This is strange. In verse 17, for the unclean person, put some ashes from the burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. It's completely different from normal Old Testament sacrifices, isn't it? It's a bit like having a first aid kit at home, Here's your purification kit. It wasn't administered by a priest, it was administered by a lay person, a normal person. 
Um, it didn't have to be done by a priest. Take some ashes, put them in a jar, add some water, add some hyssop, and hey presto, you've got your world's first instant coffee. No, you don't. You have the water of cleansing, sacrificed in a jar, if you like, ready to be used at any time, any place. But notice one thing. The emphasis on the color red. It was a red heifer. There's a red cloth which was burned on the fire. And they were chosen because their color was the color of blood. It's pretty lucky that nobody parked a Ferrari next to them because they would have burned that too. You see, this potent potion was all about the blood. Uniquely, the ashes uh, contained the blood of the burned-off animal. The blood was thrown in the direction of the tent of meeting, if you remember, as close as they could get it without actually defiling the tent of meeting. It's the lifeblood within the ashes that contains the potency to cleanse sin. Now, that doesn't actually make much sense in an Old Testament context, because, as I say, this is different from other Old Testament sacrifices but it makes absolute sense in a biblical context. Because if we just flip over to page uh, 1207, and Hebrews chapter 19. And there we find a direct reference to the water purification. So verse 13 of chapter 9. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living gods. You see, we can be cleaner than we possibly imagine because the blood of Christ cleanses us right down to our consciences. And often it's our conscience which is the last part of us to be cleansed, isn't it? Yes, we can be convicted of sin, we can repent of it, we can say sorry, we can ask God for forgiveness, but deep down we still ache inside at what we have done. And God doesn't want that. He wants us to be able to reach for our instant purification kit and to know the joy of being clean. And we can in Christ. Yes, of course, we might have to contend with the consequences of sin. The debt on our overextended credit card, our hurt and damaged uh, relationships. But we should never have to live with the destructive guilt which simply contaminates everything else that we try to do for God and leads to more sin and more damage. Do you know what I mean? Well, over in chapter 20, when the Israelites come back to Moses and grumble yet again, and we see some of what I'm talking about there. There's no need to uh, go into detail of verses 2 to 5. You uh, pretty much know the pattern by now, having followed the series of Numbers the desire to be prematurely dead. If only we had died when our brothers died, they say. The accusing questions, why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert? The deceptive memories, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place 
No grain, no figs, no grapevines or pomegranates. They forgot to mention melons this time. They normally mention melons. Oh, but, of course, there is no water to drink. Do you see the nature of undealt with sin? The focus on themselves and their comforts. They're looking for somebody else to blame. Their bleak outlook on life. Their failure to see the hand of God in their situation. Christians, is that where you are? It doesn't have to be so. See, the blood of Christ was no superficial cleansing, a sprinkling of water. The blood of Christ can and should go deep down into our life, bearing a new fruit in our lives, a fruit of caring for others, of seeing others as better than ourselves, of making the most of circumstances beyond our control, learning from them, trusting in the loving, guiding hand of God even through the hard times. And some of you have faced terrible times, deep hurt, inexplicable suffering, And some of you may have added to that with your own sin and negative emotions. But the blood of Jesus is no mere sprinkling. It is a deep cleansing that reaches right down into our souls. Why? So that we may serve the living God, says Hebrews. If any of you uh, need to talk this through or pray with somebody afterwards, then uh, there'll be those of us, including me, available to help. But first I want to look in more detail at chapter 20. Because it's there that we learn our second point, which is God's mercy goes far beyond what we deserve. At first sight, chapter 20 looks like another disaster, and in many ways it is. We're nearly the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert now, and Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, a community leader, but also responsible for one of the most serious rebellions against Moses, dies in verse 1. It's dealt here without much fuss or special ceremony. She died was buried, and that was pretty much that. But then the people grumbled again in verses 2 to 5, as we've seen. And this calls to mind a a similar instance about 40 years before. It's related to Exodus 17, at a place called Rephidon, or something like that. So Moses and Aaron, this is the second time around, Moses and Aaron knew what to do, didn't they, when they came across this grumbling again. And in verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. But there's a twist in this story, because back then, back at Rephidim, Moses had been told to take his staff, the one it had been used to strike the Nile with in order to turn its waters red back in Egypt. He was told to go before the rock at Horeb. He was told to strike the rock and the water will come out of it so that the people can drink. So got it? Staff, rock, strike the rock, water will flow. But here at Kadesh in Numbers 20, Moses is told to take Aaron's staff, the one that budded almonds in Numbers 17, which he did and gather the assembly at the rock, which he did, and speak to that rock before their eyes, and out will pour water. So staff, rock, speak to the rock, water will flow. Do you see the difference? Moses was to strike the rock at Rephidim and speak to the rock at Kadesh. So what did he do? Verse 9, 
So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water after this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and the livestock drank. So not only did Moses strike the rock instead of speaking to it, he also took the opportunity to do something that he had not been told to do, something he didn't do last time. He took the opportunity to give the people a right old roasting for all their grumbling and rebellion against him. Do you see that? Perhaps it was the frustration of 40 years. They got the better of him. Perhaps he was just having a bad day. Perhaps it was the final straw. Whatever it was, Moses was angry and he wanted the people to taste his anger. God, meanwhile, just wanted to give them water. Speak to that rock. Before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. You see, neither here nor 40 years earlier at the other instant is there any hint of God's anger. Yes, the people grumbled, but they didn't have water. God wanted them to drink. In a singular display of his great mercy and power over creation, God wanted to give the people what they most wanted in the deserts. It was Moses who let rip here. Psalm 106 calls them uh, Moses' rash words. And I think that sometimes we can fall into that trap as well, can't we? And forget that God's mercy really does go far beyond what we deserve. You see, Jesus was clear, wasn't he? Remove that log from your own eye before speaking about the speck of dust in someone else's. Sometimes we are as quick to judge as God is, as slow to anger. And we do God a huge injustice there, don't we? Our place is not to judge others and pick holes in what they're doing. Our job is to build them up and encourage them. And we can achieve so much more by affirming the good in people than condemning the bad. We want to help people live for bigger ideals rather than ticking them off for the small corner of their potential which they do inhabit. We need to remember that God's mercy goes far beyond what we deserve. But that doesn't mean that disobedience is not important. We can't just ignore immorality, anger, discord, gossip, jealousy, or anything else that God counts as disobedience. Because, and here's my third and final point, God's holiness is more serious than we can ever comprehend. And I think we've been getting the hang of this a little bit, haven't we, in numbers? I hope so. Uh, because God's holiness is so easy for us to forget. Just look at how Moses disobeyed God here in Numbers 20. He was Moses. He was on the homeward straight. Up until now, he had been spared the death sentence that had been placed on everyone else in his generation, but he thought he had listened carefully to God's instructions. But he hadn't, had he? He went and did exactly what he had done before. He struck the rock when he should have spoken to it. And the history of Moses is always saying that Moses did exactly what God commanded. But here he didn't, did he? He disobeyed. Why? Because he hadn't listened. It may seem a minor thing to you to strike a rock rather than to to speak to it. But I think there's something much more deep going on here. It reminds me of the apparently true story 
or a 37-year-old Macedonian man who drove across Italy and into Germany before noticing that his wife was missing. The man only realized that his 35-year-old wife wasn't in the car when he got a mobile, a phone on his mobile from the police to say she was waiting for him in a petrol station near Pesaro in central Italy. He later said, I filled up the tank with petrol, paid, and then just drove off. I was very tired and not thinking straight. She usually sits in the back seat, so I didn't really notice she wasn't there until I got a call when I was already in Germany. He immediately drove back to the petrol station to pick up his wife so they could resume their holiday. He said, I have a lot of apologizing to do. Well, perhaps Moses had got used to treating God as that man did to his backseat passenger. Yes, you pretend you're listening, but your mind's on the job in hand. Yep, okay, got that, done this before. Uh, Pick up the staff, gather the people, strike rock, or was it speak, whatever. Perhaps our relationship with God has become a little bit like that tired marriage. Sorry, what was that again? Perhaps we open our Bibles believing that we already know what God is going to say to us. And it won't be that important anyway. As long as we get the, uh, the important principles, we don't have to worry about the, the details. What we need to do is clean out our ears, turn off the television, put down a magazine, put the children out of the room for a moment, and open our Bibles and listen. Listen. And God will speak to us, often in surprising ways. And see, perhaps the importance of Moses' disobedience is not fully explained here. Perhaps there was a reluctance uh, to describe uh, the, great, the failure of the great Moses in, in detail, but there, there certainly seems to have been a line that was crossed here, a sacrilege being committed in some way. Because the problem, as far as God is concerned, is described in verse 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community in the land I give them. So perhaps it has something to do with the number of times that uh, the Psalms give the name of rock to God. Or perhaps uh, in our sort of control passage over the last few weeks, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says that Christ was the rock from which they drank. We sang about it in a song earlier on. I don't know. It's sort of conjecture, really. But certainly by hijacking this event with his rash words and flamboyant actions, Moses was diverting the attention away from God and to himself. But even allowing for that, it was a terrible price that he paid, wasn't it? Moses and Aaron were barred from the promised land. They come all this way, but they will never enter. Like all the others of their generation, they will die in the deserts. But even here, there is mercy. See, although Moses had to live and die with the consequences of his sins, if you remember Matthew 17, the transfiguration, and we see pictured in glory Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. But for that to happen, for that meeting to happen, Moses had to die there in the deserts. He may have been distraught by his death, his failure to reach the promised lands. But in Jesus, he had met somebody who could cleanse him more than he ever possibly imagined. He met a God who was more merciful than we deserve and whose holiness is more serious than we can comprehend. You see, and we can meet that same God in Jesus. 
And Jesus can do that same work in our lives, more powerful than even merely uh, making water appear from a rock. If only we're prepared to die to ourselves and live for Jesus. Allow Jesus to do a marvellous work in our lives. So let's uh, just have a short time of silence and let us in our hearts just call upon the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and to do that marvellous work. Dear Lord, you promise in your words that the very same power that you used to bring Jesus back from the dead, you will use on us to transform our lives and to make them into the kind of lives that will bring you glory. Lord, work in us. Make us, cleanse us deep down in our hearts. Make us new people, free from sin, free from guilt, free from shame, people living for you in a new and magnificent way. Lord, come upon us. Send your Holy Spirit upon us. May he transform our lives as we open our hearts to you. Amen.